Welcome to Chinuch Today. I am your host, Rabbi Yerachmiel Garfield. Please join me as we highlight innovative ideas and inspiring people from the world of Chinuch. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chinuch Today. Today's topic is probably one of the most serious and important topics that could be discussed in the area of Chinuch. I once had the most sobering thought at that point, our school had approximately 250 students, maybe 40 or 50 teachers and faculty. And I, I prepared for my beginning of the year speech in which I would go over some of the rules and regulations. It dawned on me that statistically in a school of 200, 250 students, there are a large number of students who are being impacted by abuse and specifically sexual abuse. And even amongst the faculty of 40, many of them being women, they in their own lives had also statistically experienced this type of trauma. And when I got up to speak to our faculty and to, about our safety precautions and the importance of the subject, I was really overwhelmed to think about the tremendous achrayas, the responsibility that all educational leaders have towards this topic. It's a little hard to get specific statistics. In this interview, Mrs. Fox estimates that the statistics are comparable. She said there are some people trying to get exact statistics, but whatever the statistics are, let's say 5%, 3%, 10%, whatever they are, in a school of 200 students, that's six kids. That's six precious Jewish little children who are suffering at the hands of another adult who was abusing their power and destroying that child's life. That is not acceptable. That is not okay. That is a scary, scary reality. And as our school has grown and now has close to 500 students and 100 faculty members, my sense of a chryas is even greater. And the level of concern that I have continues to escalate. And that's why this topic is of such importance, because other than giving life or taking, God forbid, the life of a child, what more could one do of importance than protecting them from this type of personal violence that is destructive to both their physical lives, their spiritual lives, their sense of identity, and the entire trajectory of their religious experience? There is perhaps no name more associated with this effort than Debbie Fox out of California. She is one of the first Orthodox Jewish social workers to develop a program specifically aimed at uh, sexual abuse and all, all types of abuse, but specifically sexual abuse. As you will hear, it's an area of great passion and knowledge of hers. And for any of us who are both parents or educators, I can't think of a more important investment, both in terms of resources and energy, than ensuring that we are doing everything we can to get rid of this horrible ailment from our society. I don't know if one could ever really get rid of it, but at least minimize it, be aware of it, and do everything possible to protect our children so that they could grow. One of the fundamental theorists in understanding human development is that of Abraham Maslow, who talks about the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in that hierarchy of needs, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, he talks about the basic needs 
and that only when one has their basic safety needs met, such as the ability to eat and shelter on their head and um, physical safety, only then can a person develop the higher order needs, such as love, relationships, certainly spirituality, and learning. And that's why when we talk about chinuch, when we talk about child development, if a child is not physically safe, is not physically cared for, does not have those basic emotional building blocks firm, then there's very little that could be built on such a foundation. And that's from an educational perspective. Additionally, why when a child suffers that kind of level of trauma and that level of trauma is not addressed properly, it will undermine any other efforts in terms of relationships, love, certainly spirituality, and ability to connect to Hashem. Not all children who suffer have the that potential taken from them. There are some who are able to overcome it on their own, but certainly it's an area of great risk for any child who suffers this. So it's an honor to have Debbie Fox to talk about her program, Magenia Ladim, which you will hear about, how it developed, and how she implements it, and the amazing partnership that she has with Gedola Yisrael, who have very much engaged with her to produce a program that is very appropriate for our community, whether it be the Hasidisha community, the Litvisha community, or the modern community. So excited to have Mrs. Debbie Fox of Safety Kid Program, which is a division of Mugain Iladim International. Mrs. Fox is joining us all the way from California. Welcome, Mrs. Fox. Great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So your program is so important. There could be nothing more important than, than safety and children. I think anyone who runs a school knows that, you know, safety is always our number one, number two, and number three concern. Safety comes in a lot of different uh, ways and shapes and forms. So the safety we're going to talk about is, is it focused specifically on sexual abuse or all types of abuse and neglect? I think that there's a strong focus on sexual abuse prevention based on the fact that in our community, that topic has been very taboo. And so the issue was to bring that topic to the awareness of the community so that there isn't a a major emphasis on sexual abuse prevention. Um, But we do address physical abuse and, and neglect. We do address other types of abuse. And with kids, there's, in essence, we focus on all types of safety which also contribute to sexual abuse prevention, but also keep them safe in other environments. Got it. Okay, wonderful. We're going to dig into that in a moment. But first, let's find out who you are and how you got to this. So, Ms. Fox, where did you grow up and how did you find your way to mental health and this specific interest? So let's start with like where you grew up and your your early education. So I grew up, my father was in Klinoch. My father was a principal for well over 60 years. My father was like uh, vice president of Torah Masora way back under Dr. Joe Kamenetsky for many, many years. 
My father was actually sent to Phoenix. We grew up in Memphis. My father was sent to Phoenix, Arizona by Joe Kamenetsky well over 60 years ago and began the Phoenix, founded the Phoenix community, which is also a very actively growing community. And uh, just three years ago, retired to Eretz Yisrael. All this time he's been there and now he's in Eretz Yisrael. So I grew up in a Chinuch family, family dedicated to community. That was a very big passion of my father's, that it was uh, a community that, that, that we were as a family part of looking out not only for ourselves, but really looking out for dedication to community. So that was the family I grew up in when I was 12. I went from Phoenix to Denver for Basiaco. We didn't have a from school. We were the only from family for many, many years. So I went to Beis Yaakov in Denver. Uh, from Denver, I went to Eretz Yisrael, came back and, um, you know, then got married and got my education. Uh, Where did you go for your early college education? Or... I actually taught. I was in Chinuch myself for the first 13 years I was married or so. First 13 oh, wow. years I taught. Um, I actually loved it. I always said that if I was going to leave, I wanted to leave loving it. And I did. What did you um, teach? Judaics, high school? Judaic. I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade girls almost all those years. Almost all the years I taught, I taught 6th, 7th, and 8th grade girls. Kodesh. Yeah, Kodesh. And where and, was that? Uh, what state was that in? <laughs> we were in San Diego when my husband was getting his education. Then we moved to Baltimore when he, when he did his internship. So I taught in Baltimore. Then we moved back to Los Angeles. So I taught in Los oh. Angeles until I went back to school. I got my master's at USC. Um, and I got a double master's, a master's in gerontology, which is working with older adults and a master's in social work. And I've actually spent years working on both at different times. All right. So hold on. Fascinating. First of all, let us just acknowledge that as a practitioner, you really have a broad understanding of the reality of school, of out-of-town living, of different environments. I mean, that gives you such a broad perspective that is so valuable when you talk about the sensitivities involved in these programs. I'm sure that that's uh, so valuable. But I, I'd like to ask you, so you were teaching, you were back in L.A., you've been teaching for 10 to 13 years, you were towards the Why did you stop and then go for that master's? Was it that you realized you didn't want to do teaching for so long, or you just had this desire to become more educated? What what was the impetus behind that first jump? The interesting thing was we had had, uh, I taught at Yavna Hebrew Academy here, and a few blocks away there was a nursing home with older adults. And somehow or another, I started to bring my class to this nursing home very often. We would do all these projects, and we would bring them there, and the class loved them, and we really integrated with them so wow. much like, literally it was almost six seven that was really the seventh and eighth grade and we were always integrated with them and i realized that i loved that piece we also did this whole fundraising campaign where we raised this was so many years ago we raised uh money for hearing impaired people to get some type of a hearing system that would allow them to be in different environments and i loved that giving to others and and the integration like that. And so I wanted to actually get the degree just in gerontology because I loved that work. All of my mentors had convinced me that even if I was going to get the degree in gerontology, I should also get a degree in, in social work, which I did. 
I actually started out my career for the first uh, almost 10 years working in um, psych hospitals. Back in the day when people really got therapy in psych hospitals before it was more like it is today, uh, it was intensive therapy in psych hospitals. And I spent my first almost 10 years, you know, first as a social worker, then worked my way up to uh, more administrative positions uh, at Cedars here that you had a program called Thalians, and I was the director of outpatient services. And then it so you weren't working with the firm community at that time? I didn't want to. I wanted to get all my experience in the world at large and then bring it to the firm community if I were to go in. So what happened was I was in a very big position at Cedars, and I felt like I was moving really far away from working with people. And so I told them I would give notice. I kind of gave them whatever they wanted, like I wasn't running anywhere. So they asked me for a year and I gave them a year and we worked it out. I chose who I was going to hire. I trained them. Um, and then when I left, there was this very small position at Jewish. I went from supervising 90 people at Cedars to supervising one person at mm. Jewish Family Service as they were talking about opening a program that we later called Alenu, which was a program for the from community. So that's how I Unbelievable. kind of evolved. Wow. Yeah. Did you have in mind the abuse aspects of it, or that was something that came later, I guess, uh -huh. as you started working with the community? Right. So we worked, I worked within the community and we built up a counseling center and then from the counseling center, we built up more of a, a program that really met the needs of the community, with different educational programs, different school programs, different whatever the needs were within the community, we were there. We developed very close relationships with Child Protective Services. And so we did deal with that. I had a group of Rabbanim, we at the time called them the Halakhic Advisory Board, it was an incredible group of Rabbanim throughout the Los Angeles community, many of which I would say outside of working in this program together, they never work together, yeah. um, you know, all different aspects of the community. But I will say when I called them to a meeting, they were there like that, all of them. Uh, people used to tease that if you wanted to reach one of them, that if you called me, you'd get them, you know, because wow. they really were so active. And what ended up happening after many years of working with the program was that we had three incidents and within about six months of sexual abuse, this is probably about 13 or 14 years ago, it was, each of them was quite heinous and very shocking to us. And after the third incident, when I called them together and presented it to them, one of them said, he said, all of us with our gray beards, we can't walk out of this room and do nothing after what we've seen. Because if it's happening here, it's happening other places too. And I, I've often teased that what they said was they turned to the social worker in the group and said, do something, which is which is what pretty much happened was like, Debbie, you find something for us, you know, figure it out. So I did a national search at the time of different programs and found uh, a program at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and contacted them and told them that we were looking at adapting a program for the Orthodox Jewish community. They were thrilled. 
They gave me a mentor who was with me for a year. She actually trained all of our people and had them go out to Palos Verdes, California to train them there. And then wow. she came here and did trainings. She helped us adapt the entire program. It was very interesting. She said at the end, you can put on skirts, you can separate your girls and your boys, you can do all of that, but you got to keep the program kosher. That's what she said. You got to give over the right messages. So that's what we did. That's how we started. We started just with a children's program. The research then showed us that this children's program alone was not valuable. So we added a parent program. Then we added a staff program. Then we added an administrative program. And now we have a very comprehensive. We even have a, a Rabunin program. So we have a very comprehensive program, which research shows is the most effective way to bring in a community program. Beautiful. Okay. Wow. So many interesting points here. First of all, you, you mentioned you did a national search of different programs. Why did you choose this particular program to partner with? First of all, they were evidence-based. They had done their own research on it. Mm -hmm. But the other thing was there were many of the programs that we did not feel we could bring into the firm community. Some of them I felt were intrusive or uncomfortable. They would have big posters of you. You would come in, you would take this big poster of a child's body and you would say, this is their body parts. Don't let anybody talk to you. But there was mm -hmm. no discussion before and no rapport built. No. And we were very uncomfortable with that approach. Um, our approach, we start with general safety, which is going to be helpful to every child in their life. I often say we teach them what to do when they get lost. At Mir Tashem, most kids won't get sexually abused, but they'll all get lost. And if we teach them that skill on the way, it A, is a skill to prevent sexual abuse, but B, it does help them know what to do when they get lost. But we build rapport with them before we talk about sexual abuse prevention. So that was part of it, was finding ways to say things. They were willing to work with us on language and how we said things so that we could find ways to be direct, um, yet culturally sensitive. Wonderful. And, and you mentioned something to me very curious, which is initially you started with the kids program, but you found that the research didn't indicate that it was effective on its own which makes me wonder if you chose this program because they were research-based, there must've been a missed conversation because they had research saying it was effective, but the program you implemented was not effective initially. They did have a parent program. They did have a parent program, but the way we started it, we didn't get trained on their parent program. We just put all our emphasis into the children's program. The way they ran their parent program wouldn't have worked in our community, so we Got developed it. our own. Got they it. did not have the staff or the administrative programs or the, let's say, clergy program. Those they did not have. The research shows the most important piece is the parent program, but it's all adults in their lives. It's really all adults in a child's life have to know the language with them. Or if they say something and you don't hear them, then they will shut down. And the research shows that 70 to 80% of them will never bring it up again. 
Wow. So it's incredibly important that the adults in their lives know how to handle if a child says something. It's very interesting to me that um, if that the parenting training is more effective than the child training. Can you, can you tell us more about why that is? Why is it that you're training someone who's not with the child all the time, obviously, right? The child is with the child. The child is in the environment. Why is it that training the parents is more effective? It's not that it's more effective. It's that it has to happen together. Oh. It's that it has to happen together, that it's very important to train the children. But if the children can't communicate with their parents and the parents can't communicate with the children, um, then they don't have backup or a resource. Okay, so it's not one or the other. It's just they need to, you realize that both are te- integral pieces of the whole picture. Right. I often say, and I deeply believe that in order to keep a community safe, in order to keep one child safe from child sexual abuse, you have to educate the community. It takes a community. It takes the school to know. It takes mm-hmm. the parents to know. It takes the rabbinim to know. And it takes the children to know. When everybody knows, when we all work together, that's when a child is safe. And in the 13 years that you've been doing this program, or 10 year plus, have you seen cases? Have you been? Re- have people reported to you cases where children, in fact, brought up concerns to the parents, and the system really kicked in as as you had hoped it would? You know, uh, people often ask me that question. And the answer is yes, in many ways. But what I love, what to me is is the sign of success, is the numbers of what I call the small cases. Because when those small cases are handled, they don't become bigger cases. And so as recently as last night, when a man called me up and said that his wife was at my workshop, the next night the workshop was done by someone I trained who does the same workshop, and he went to that. And his child, his daughter, had the program in school. The daughter had come to them the night before and said that um, someone had come into his room. His older son had a few children, had a few friends over. They don't know exactly who it was or whatever. But in any case, a fourth grader came in and said to her father, someone came into my room and touched me right then. It's a small case? And that's what I would call because she prevented it. Mm -hmm. She got up and went into her parents. She stopped it and went into her parents. And they were able to prevent it. Wow. So what what we want is for children to say when a child on a bus last week uh, or was it Monday, whatever was very recently, the child was on a bus and another child tried to touch her under her shirt, an older child. She immediately went home and said to her mother, remember, they said in school that no one's allowed to touch us in the private areas of their body. This is what just happened. So when kids are speaking, the importance is for a parent to know how to respond. Right. Because if a parent doesn't hear them, then they're not protected. So they need to know how to tell, and a parent needs to know how to hear. Do you get a sense of statistics, the firm community versus other communities, in terms of how prevalent these issues are? Is it like an illness? You know, one could argue that pedophilia is an illness, like 
we would assume the cancer rates are the same in our community as other communities and and the other diabetes rates or whatever, they're all going to be just rates of society. Or you could argue that society impacts it and the type of lives we live are protective elements to protect us from this type of behavior. What are your thoughts and experience on that? I'm not an expert on the statistics. There are people who are working very hard to gather statistics. Uh, Yitzhi Schachter in Muncie, New York. I think YU has a program where they're working on statistics. What I am going to say that I have heard from them is our statistics are not that far off from the statistics at large. And in certain ways, our communities are more, more vulnerable. They're more vulnerable because there's a familiarity and a trust uh, in that everybody's of the same culture. We're more likely to say that couldn't have happened and that we unfortunately still are more likely to protect the predator than the child. Really? And that we don't want to just to say anything about the predator or his family we want to, we still, there's still a tremendous amount of, of interest in protecting predators so we don't bring them down and we, you know, we want to be concerned about them. I'm going to say it's important. We don't, it's not our job to judge the predator, uh, but it is our job to protect our children from predators. So do you think we're overzealous in our protection or do you think it's just, Part of being a firm Jew is that we follow Hilchas Lashon Hara and we have a standard of evidence required. And do you feel like we're being overzealous? I don't want to judge overzealous or not overzealous, but I think that, and I also never respond to halacha. That's that's uh, not my, that's not within my purview. I classify what goes under Lashon Hara and what doesn't. I've heard from many that reporting child sexual abuse is not Lashon Hara. Um, protecting children when someone is inappropriate with children is something that's really important. Um, so I think people have to look at that. Uh, that that's not a determination I make, um, but I think that to me, the priority is keeping children safe. And if someone has an issue, if it is pedophilia, it's, it's going to repeat because their interest is children and that's not normative right if to be honest if a man chooses to have an affair that's a bad thing but that's normative so you may or may not decide you're going to give him an aliyah but it's not going to hurt anybody else right right but if you're talking about someone who's being inappropriate with children then there's an atiyah for that, and and that that that's dangerous to children yeah. and to him. I mean, I think you know, I'm speaking as a manal and someone who's pretty connected to other heads of school. That if there's a clear case where the an adult is accused of serious abuse and there's no question, and they, they, you know people are willing to go on record and all that, most of us are ready pretty quickly to report them to the authorities. And that's really what the Rabbanim Tormasora has explicitly in their guidelines to do that. I think more of the challenge comes when there's like a little red flag or one report that's not so verified or a gut feeling that a teacher has like a moral comment say, Something doesn't feel right about a certain scenario. And that's where, 
Mm-hmm. I don't want to say halacha because then you, you wouldn't answer. So I would say then our cultural attitude towards being cautious really kicks in. And I've been in scenarios in my own life as a, when I was a kid, I'll tell you, you know, a very common scenario. There was, there was a well-known abuser, well-known. And this is in the late eighties, early nineties, who uh, was very involved with NCSY. And I went on an NCSY program. And before I went, I discussed it with some of my rabbanim, not because I thought the person was abusive, just because, like, I didn't know if hashkafically it was right or whatever. And their attitude was, you could go, but stay away from this person. No one told me why. So I went on the program. Thank God I wasn't of interest to them. But I think that's the kind of stuff where it's not. it wasn't at that point as known. And, you know, what are you going to do? You know, I assume that scenario repeats itself often. Respond in two ways. In one, I'm going to say that if there's a hashash, then it really does take work because we don't want to falsely accuse anybody. Right. So it could be that someone's a little weird. It could be that someone has their own like boundary issues, but they're not really inappropriate. They're not really going to be inappropriate. And so every situation does have to be really looked at, but looked at carefully. And what I would say is it really does put responsibility on a menahel in order to determine is the person a risk. And I I wouldn't know uh, the exact detail of how to tell them to do that in each case, because there's the cases are so wide, but it does put responsibility. I, I do want to tell you just an interesting story in terms of my own father, and this is many, many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, well before anybody knew anything about this stuff. And he had a Rebbe come to his school who was a Rebbe who had tremendous charisma. He had um, only boys as, as children, and he had tremendous charisma. And that charisma was spent a lot of times with girls. And my father wasn't comfortable with it. And yet... He was the most popular teacher in the school. And everybody loved this Rebbe, especially the girls. <laughs> and he wasn't comfortable. And my father would like supervise, constantly like supervise, because there's some, he didn't even know what he wasn't comfortable with, but he knew he wasn't comfortable. So he would like go or if he would often have things in his house, like sleepovers for girls in his house and all that. And my father would like stop in and my And at one point, I guess my father literally took to following him in his car because he was so worried about it. And he followed him and saw that he had taken a girl off by herself and that he was inappropriate. I mean, it became very clear. And he told him at that time, that's it. You're out. You're fired. The whole community, he didn't tell the community why. The whole community was enraged at him, at my father. And my father told him, I will go to any school you go to and tell them not to hire you. I will go to any school you apply to and I will tell them not to hire you and I will tell them why. He literally took my father to a Basin and the Basin ruled against my father. And my father said, my father was vice president of Terramasar at the time. My father said, I don't care. The rule against me, I'll do it anyway. And he did. He's the, the guy left Chinuch and wow. went to life insurance or something. Wow. But he did. He kept 
finding out where the guy wanted to work. And is there any truth to what people think that people don't accuse falsely, that most accusations are going to be true? Is that a fair assumption? I'd say that most children, most children do not accuse falsely. The lie rate is between one and three percent. And what's a child? How old is a child for that? Eighteen year old or most children from three to you know up. Most children do not lie. Where you need to, you know, is it possible that a child would lie? One percent still means that one percent or two percent or three percent that there are a certain number that may lie. You really need to look at why that is. I'd say there's a high percentage that where that lie rate is uh, are in situations when there's a divorce and one parent may be trying to accuse the other Mm. and get them involved. There very often are complicated reasons for it. But one does have to to listen. One does have to make sure that what what is said is being said is, is the child is believable, that the details make sense. I often say we have to err on the side that they're telling the truth. And if they aren't, then we'll deal with it. Then deal with it. But in that 98% are telling the truth, we have to err on the side of believing them. The number one reason children do not tell adults is because they fear that no one will believe them. Mm. And so we want to create a world where children feel they'll be believed. For sure. You mentioned that you had the rabbinic endorsements and that you had the rabbinic committee that sort of um, oversaw the development of the program. Did you get any adversarial rabbinic attention? And if so, what are the areas where that would come up? We started the program, I think we, I think, you know, looking back, I think we dealt with it wisely. We started the program working with the modern Orthodox community because we knew we could get into that door. Mm-hmm. We hadn't even finished the program when we were called to one community that had a problem. And it started out, we really kind of began the program where there were communities that had problems. And so they would call us. It ended up being what we had originally intended, which is more prevention focused. Um, what happened was the um, more modern community loved the program and it was very well utilized. And then the yeshivish community said, wait, 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 we want this program, but can you adapt it some? We were thrilled. So we have a more yeshivish version of Safety Kit. So we have our modern version of Safety Kit and his fatigues. And then we have our yeshivish version where he's wearing like a vest and is, you know, black hair and black yarmulke and all that. And then our Hasidish community said, hey, you know, we want to work on this. Uh, I spent two years with the with a certain group of Hasidic Hasidish Rabbanim and some people who this Pinchas Roth, who's incredible, uh, real community Askin. And it took us two years of working with, I worked with him and with these Menahalim and, and some of their therapists. And then once, and they kept taking it to their Dianim and coming back with feedback. I will say to their credit, they did say all along, 
um, that the final yes or no would be me. That Diana would give their opinions, but that the final would be I had to feel comfortable. I will tell you their program is state of the art. Um, we actually, they actually took it to Belgium. It's now in Flemish as well. Our program is also in Spanish. Every school in Mexico City uses the program every year. And they're going through Europe. The Hasidic group is now, I just brought them to Lakewood. They're just going to be going into Lakewood Hasidic community. So they have a, a really beautiful program and is extremely well received. There was only one point, I would say, with almost any group. There were different ways people would ask us to say things. The Hasidic group does say things in a little bit of a different way, but all their messages are clear. All their messages are the same. But the only piece that has been controversial, I would say, it's, to me, it's a small piece, an important piece, but a small piece, is that we do stress that the research shows that children who know the names of their body parts are less likely to be molested than children who do not know names of body parts. Wow. And so people did not like that idea of knowing, of teaching children names of their body parts. And I would say that still is probably the most controversial piece. Why do you think research is that? Why do you think, why do you think that's the case? Because if a parent can't tell a child, this is the name of your body, and these are the parts of your body, this is and you're not allowed to let anybody touch you in these areas of your body, and you can't touch anybody else in that, those areas, if you can't even have a conversation with your child about it, then they get that you're somewhat uncomfortable. You teach them what their eyes are, their nose are, their mouth is, their elbows are, and then there's a whole part of their body. And the, of course, you know, by five years old, they all know the names of their body parts. They just learned them from a five-year-old, not right. from a parent. So what they end up doing, kids very often will tell other kids who are comfortable talking about it as opposed to their parents. Because what they learn from their parents is that the parents are uncomfortable. So the issue is the children who know the names of the body parts can go back and tell. We actually have this situation come up all the time where children don't know how to tell their parents who touched them where because they don't have different names. They don't know what to say. Mm. We just had a situation of children who call all their body parts belly. Someone touched me on my belly, but did they really touch you on your belly, belly your stomach? Yeah. Did they touch you? Belly. Where did they touch you? Nobody knew because there's this, you know, this vague way of describing body parts. So that's what I would say has been the most controversial. Other than that... Have I've the got... Rabbanim opined on that issue? Like, did you bring it to the Vod Rosh Hashivas, or I don't know who the big Rabbanim, or Shmuel Kamenetsky, he should be well, or have, have you gotten... Shmuel, Rav Shmuel, who, oh my gosh, Rav, Rosh Hashiva had, was, at the beginning of this, so amazing. I think people would not have believed the amount of hours he poured into all of this. You know, I'll tell you, at one point we have a, a, a grooming picture. And so we were sure that if we had like a very firm person grooming a child, that no school would let that in. They'd say, you can't do that. Right. So we had like a not from a looking person, right? <laughs> and Rashmul looks at it as he's going through all of our pictures and he says, this is no good. Wow. He says, this is no good because then kids will think that they have to look like that. They have to look like the kids. So I said, I think I said, you know, 
would the Rosh Hashiva consider that if I put a picture that looked like the kids, then the schools won't let it in. So he looks at me with that uh, beautiful smile and he says, I'm sure Mrs. Fox can figure it out. <laughs> and uh, which was really so beautiful. And we did kind of come up with a, a mixed like figure. But I will tell you something, the Hasidim, it's a Hasidish person grooming. They're straight up. Right. Um, they sure. they they went straight. I think when we redo it, we also will redo it as well. But he he spent hours on all of that, and different people have said different things. I'm I met with Shlomo Miller. He said you have to tell people they have to come up with something, but it has to be culturally sensitive to them. You can't tell them what to say. I met with you know I met Baruch Hashem. I've been able. I will say something that's been beautiful. I've never had a Rosh Hashiva or a Rav not meet with me over this program. I've met, met with Rav Avram Chaim Levin. I met with Rav Brudny, with Rav Shmuel, with Rav Shlomo, with, um, yeah, with Rav Shlomo Miller, with, I've met in, in Cleveland. I've met with wherever I've been and with Rav Heinemann, with all of them always with the receptivity and an interest in, in all that we're doing. That's wonderful. Yeah. How how has it evolved since you started till now, other than the Hasidish or, but the core program, is there anything? So you said you added the uh, comprehensive nature. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you've noticed that really wasn't working or that needed to be adapted? There are certain things that we, we've added in the way that we say things um we're we're going to within the next few couple of years next year or so we're going to just you know redo things modernize Graphics. the way we, we prevent it but in terms of the information most of the homer is the same i have added things we just recently added a sixth grade our program goes up to fifth grade we just added a sixth or eighth grade girls program a separate program through sixth or eighth grade girls where I sat with Rabbi Forsheimer and Rabbi um, Shachar and Lakewood went through the entire thing with them, went through with from base Vega and Lakewood with their whole administration. So we're just kind of going through it and fine tuning it again. But that that we're doing the other piece that I've added not to the safety kit program, but to what we do is um, a program for girls going to seminary. Is that a dangerous time would you say seven or vulnerable time (laughs) right a vulnerable time and so we go through a lot of different things with them uh interesting i will say something i learned from the girls is there are a lot of different aspects we talked to them about not just sexual abuse prevention but a lot of different aspects about relationships and stuff like that and we found that the girls had gotten angry and they would say to us, why are you telling us now when we're in 12th grade? Why didn't you tell us when we were in ninth grade? This is too late for you to be bringing all of this to wow. us. So uh, we do have a more informal program that we're doing now in, in certain high schools just because the girls have said it, it's too late for us when you just tell us in 12th grade. Wow. So, yeah, we've heard wow. some really amazing stories from girls, some who have called their mentors in the States while they're in seminary, some who have come back, um, but that it's, it's really helped them. 
just give us an overview of like the time commitment for schools and for communities, just so people know, is it like all year, like once a week, or is it like an intense week of training and programming or how does it play out? So the most recent way we've been doing it, that's been most effective for let's say different schools, rather than doing it the way we've always done it, which was let's say you and Houston would call us and I would bring a team in and we would do the program once. And like you say, that's your, your very, very intensive week, which means we come in and we meet with um, the administrative team in the morning. In the afternoon, we meet with your staff for two hours, administrators for two hours. Then we meet with staff for two hours. And then I, we meet with the parents for two hours. Then the next day, I have my team going into all your classes and we provide the program to all your classes and then we're done. And then if you want us to come back in a couple of years, we come back. What we just have been doing recently that we have found schools have been really helped, very uh, found very helpful is that we do a train the trainer within your school and we train your staff to to do the program. So it's still an intense week, but then we end up selling the school all the materials and everything so that you can continue the program every year. Some schools end up doing it that they have a few people trained that will go into all the classrooms and some have teachers from every classroom trained. It's, you know, kind of up to the school, but then you don't have to have us come back. You buy the materials, buy the training, all of that. We train your trainers and then you can continue doing it. So how many hours of class time does the training take? The training in a classroom is about an hour. Okay. That's it. What's amazing is in each class is about an hour. What's amazing is when you go back the next year, they know it inside out. Right. We also have some different programs like we do it the first two years. That's what we learned from the National Center. You always do it the same twice. We developed a program for people who have already kids who have already had it twice, which is more of an applied learning program. And that's where we give them scenarios and each scenario has a bit of a twist to it and the kids are in groups and the kids have to decide what would I do if it happened to me Mm. right now? What would I do if it happened to me to teach them to think fast and to think on their own? Whereas the first time we do it, it's more really teaching you the skills. Now the kids have to think with what I've already learned. What would I do right now? I will just tell you, we had a an, a situation where we teach the kids how to dial 911, not that they don't know how to dial 911, but one of the things we teach them is that if if the 911 operator or Hatsala, whoever it is, wants to hang up, that you never let them hang up until help arrives. You stay on the phone because you should never be alone within an emergency um, until another adult gets there. We, we teach them that. So we went to one community several years ago. We taught them the whole program, and this was part of it. So to dial 911 and whatever it may be. We went back a few years later, and this kid was now in junior high, and I was doing this group. And when I said, hey, has anybody ever called 911? And this boy raises his hand and bursts into tears. I looked at the Rebbe, and I like said, like, do you know anything what's going on? And he's like, I don't know turned out the boy shared with everybody that that summer he had been in a car accident with both parents. Both parents were unconscious. He took his father's phone out of his pocket, knew how to go through the emergency 
to the to the you know the yeah. lock to get to, call nine one one, and they said to him, "Okay, someone will be be there within five to ten minutes," and was ready to hang up. And he said, "I yelled at her. You are not allowed to hang up this phone until they get here." Wow! But can you imagine a seventh grader alone on a freeway with two unconscious parents and a sibling by himself with nobody on the phone with him? Right. So they. They really do learn it. Amazing. We're getting to the end, and this has been really great. I've learned a lot about the program. I'm wondering, you know, you and your husband raising a family, if you started raising a family today, let's say you had young young kids and you were, um, you know, looking at the world with sleepaway camps and seminaries and sleepovers and cousins and all the things that we parents are going through, are there any policies that the Fox family would have to protect their children other than communication and the very important stuff that your program focuses on, but are there any unique policies that you have in place to protect children, your children, that you put in place? Well, I'd say the most important one is the one you just said, other than. Right. The, the, I'd say the number one factor in keeping your children in your home safe is your communication. That if your approach with your children is a natural approach where you talk to them naturally, even if it pushes your comfort level, and they hear it from you first, and then they can talk to you. That's your that is the number one factor that in keeping your own children safe. I'll, I'll really quickly just tell you that something to me that I felt within the from community was a a real missed opportunity was the whole situation that happened with Chaim Walder. The reason I say that is most kids found out from other kids and most kids' parents gave very like hashkopic views of it. Well, whatever the Rabbanim say and blah, blah, blah. There were really no discussions about what actually happened and why are we getting rid of the books and are we, or are we not or whatever. There were not open conversations. If anything, the kids love the hawk and that's what they learn they learn from the hawk it would have been such an incredible opportunity to sit down at dinner and say wow somebody we respected so much was inappropriate with children and if anybody even a Chaim Walder even someone who wrote so many books that everybody respected if if even a Chaim Walder was inappropriate. Look at that. We literally, we, we get rid of all his books. There's n- th- that he is cut out from our lives because nobody can be inappropriate with children. Mm. But it's a small way of saying that if we open up to our kids and talk to them, they can come back to us. Then even if they're in a vulnerable position, they have their parent to make sure they're going to be safe. A secret empowers the predator. Got it. So you would yeah. send your kids to camp or to sleep or to sleepaway camp or to friends' houses or to dormitories or to seminary as long as they're prepared. Right. And that also takes work from my angle. Like you're saying, what are the policies? That means am I calling the camp? Do I know if the camp has a policy? Do I know? Am I telling my kids if anything were to happen in camp, who would you speak to? Do I tell my kids that or am I waiting for them to figure it out? Right. 
right? So do I know that it's a safe camp and that I feel comfortable with the training they're giving their counselors and their philosophies? Or am I just sending my child because that's where everybody's going? So you have to be sure you're comfortable. You have to do your homework first, right? You have to, that's the purpose of the seminary savvy program that we do is you can send your child to seminary, but are they prepared? Yeah. Right. And so that's, that's really one of the things I tell girls going to seminary is you need to know, I, I tell them you've all gone shopping. You all have the new shoes. You have the new skirts. You have the new dresses. You have all that kind of stuff. You got enough shampoo to last 20 years. You got it all right. But you got to pack your trusted adult. If anything happens while you're there, very hard in the in the midst of a crisis or in the midst of what's going on to figure out who can I trust, mm-hmm. who can help me. You got to pack them. You got to know clearly if anything happened, who would I call before you go? Wonderful. All right. Is there anything else that you want us to know about the program? We've covered most of it. I think we did a good job. But I, don't, I want to give you a chance if there's a piece of it that we didn't cover or something you want them to know. And then how would they contact you? There's a website, I assume, is the best way to be in touch. Right, right. Yeah, there's a website through email on the website is probably the best way. Okay. All right. Wonderful. The website is mychildsafetyinstitute.org. And, or uh, magenialadim.org. Oh, or magenialadim. And, of course, we'll have that in the uh, in the show notes. Well, thank you. What you're doing is so important. You're literally saving lives and setting up a healthy, safe community, which is so important. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And I hope people take your message very seriously and get training and spread the word and make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect our precious children. So thank thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed listening to Mrs. Fox as much as I enjoyed interviewing her. And most importantly, that you walk away with a feeling of empowerment. She said clearly that as a parent, she would not stop her child or her children from engaging in all the activities that we allow our children to engage in, whether they be sleepovers or camp or seminary, all the places where danger lurks. But as long as we are aggressive with the anecdote, which clearly is communication, open dialogue, engagement. And whether or not you are trained through her program, which I certainly hope you'll have an opportunity to participate in firsthand at some point, but even without that, just making sure that we are engaging our children in conversations and that our children know that we are safe for them to speak to and that there's no shame in whatever experiences come their way. And I believe Mrs. Fox was very clear that if done properly, it really does protect our children in a evidence-based way. If our parents and our rebellion and our children and our leaders are educated in this manner, then it really does provide a level of perfection and comfort that we know that the environment that our children are in are safe. So please follow up with her with the other many resources available through her website about this important topic. Continue to be vigilant and make sure that we're doing everything we can to protect our children. And if you're listening to this and you have either experienced any type of abuse or are aware of abuse, please reach out to someone responsible. You could probably reach out to Mrs. Fox directly and there are other organizations such as Amudim, 
which also provides support and direction for these type of cases. But don't just let it go. Stand up, say something, do something, and make sure we're all doing everything we can to make sure our community is a safe one for our children to grow up and develop and ultimately have wonderful and rich relationships with others, with their spouse, with their children, and with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Thank you for joining us today on Chinuch Today Podcast. Please continue to share us and rate us as that is the lifeblood for our growth. As always, if you have any questions or concerns or ideas for guests, please email me at chinuchtodaypodcast at gmail.com. That's chinuchtodaypodcast at gmail.com. This is your Achmiel Garfield wishing you a wonderful day.